our church in, uh, in Stockholm, we've got three different parts to it. So we've got a, uh, an international service which meets it using English, and that meets at 4 o'clock in a, a Sunday afternoon. We have to rent another church's building in the center of uh, Stockholm. And that's really interesting because we've got people, a bit like here, from all over the world, where English is almost everybody's second language. And so that's really fascinating, like how we do things, what makes us think sometimes about the songs that we sing and the words that we use and how we preach, because almost everybody is doing it in their second language. I get to do it in my first. But then we've got a, the same time in the same building in another part, we have a Swedish language service, which we started about a year, year and a half ago. And so there's about 80 to 100 people in the, in the main room. There's about 20 to 30 uh, in another room doing the, at the same time, worshiping all, all in Swedish this time. And then earlier in the day, we have uh, a meeting in Swahili, where we have guys from, who came to Sweden through uh, their refugees from Congo. Uh, DRC Congo fled violence in the eastern part, which there still is. One of the biggest tragedies in the world is what happens in Congo, where millions of people have died or fled the country. We don't hear about it, but it's one of the worst tragedies of the last 20, 30 years. And so we've got guys in our church who grew up in a refugee camp, have never had a home until they came to Sweden. Uh, some of them were born in a foreign country, not their own, and they found their way to Sweden. So we support these guys, uh, and they have a meeting in a different place, and there's about anywhere between 20 and 60, depending on the weather, mostly. Uh, there's a, they're, they're, they're all from the equator, and so there's various seasons of life in Sweden when they just look outside and go, nah, it's not, it's, it's not, happen, it's not happening today. Um, but it's great. So that's our church, uh, and we're just trusting God to, to help us. There aren't many new frontiers or relational mission churches in, uh, in Sweden or in Scandinavia. So, so Denmark, Norway, uh, Sweden, Finland, add those up. Uh, you've got about 20 million people, uh, and I think that there are three New Frontiers churches. Um, now, we're not the only Word and Spirit churches, but there are very few of those as well. So we have a great challenge as well as an opportunity ahead of us, and so we really covet your prayers. I uh, love you if you think of us in your prayer meetings to pray for particularly our Swedish language church. All of our church needs your prayers and needs God's help, but we really want to establish a Swedish language multiplying sense of God's grace amongst us when we, when we preach faithfully from the Word of God, when we ask the Spirit to come and help us. We need many more of those churches. So uh, in Sweden, it's generally a pretty liberal country, um, and also most of the churches are also that. And so lots of, lots of areas, they're, they're just moving away from this. It's the Bible, by the way. So, uh, which is what I'm going to preach from today. Uh, my privilege to preach to you. So I've got a question for you. If you were asked, someone came to you and said, right, I just want to look at one chapter, right? Just one chapter of the Bible. And I want you to tell me everything that I need to know about, about church, what it means to be a Christian, leadership, as many possible things about our hope, our vision, our future. Which chapter would you pick? It's a tricky one, isn't it? Well, I now think I would pick the one I'm going to preach from today. 
uh, having read it and studied it, I, I picked it because I, Hugh said, oh, we're going to be praying for elders. I thought, oh, well, I've got this verse. And then as I started to read the chapter, I thought, hmm, this is pretty good. There's a lot here. So Hebrews chapter 13. So if you have a Bible with you or on your phone or one of these good old-fashioned things made of paper, Hebrews 13 is where we're going to be today. Now, I, I also heard that, um, <clears throat> that you've just finished a series on loving one another. Is that right? Well, the very first verse of Hebrews 13 says, let brotherly love continue. So carry on. All the things you've just been doing, learning about love one another, carry on. And I'm not, so I won't, I won't talk about too much about that, but let brotherly love, brother, sibling love, family love, let that continue. So that's where we start. All right, which is a good place to start. But I'm going to draw a few, I'm going to sort of organize my thoughts slightly differently. So Hebrews 13, it's right at the end of the, of the book of Hebrews. And so they've talked about other things in the other 12 chapters, which lead to this point where they're sort of summing stuff up. So Hebrews 13 is essentially a summary of a whole lot of things that have been going on in the book before. So I'm just going to draw out a few things, and we're going to go through the whole chapter, but I'm going to sort of slightly organize my thoughts slightly differently. So the first place I want to start with when I think about the church is the gospel. Right? It's not a bad place to start. So uh, we're going to think about the gospel because the gospel is the foundation for everything else that should happen in the life of the church. Everything else, nothing should be going on and thinking and doing if it hasn't got a foundation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we've got two key elements to the gospel. The first one is the cross of Christ. So Hebrews is an amazing book where it talks, it links a lot of the things that you read about in the Old Testament and links it to Jesus. So here, even in uh, verse 12, it says Jesus, after having talked about uh, what the priests did in the Old Testament, it says Jesus also suffered outside the city gate in order to sanctify the people by his own blood. So what happens was in the Old Testament... People had to offer a sacrifice. Uh, in, if they've done something wrong, they would have to go to the priests and they would offer a sacrifice. And it couldn't just be any old thing that they would sacrifice. It had to be, if possible, a lamb. And not just any old lamb, but your, the most pure and spotless lamb that you had or that you could purchase for that. It had to be, in other words, the most valuable lamb that you had. So animals were currency. This is your wealth. And so the best of your best had to be given, the purest, the most spotless, was given as a sacrifice. So it was costly to sacrifice a lamb. And, in, and it stood in contrast, the purity of the lamb, white and spotless, against you, sinner. And the priest, you'd take it to the priest, and the priest would look at the lamb. Wouldn't look at you, would look at the lamb. Would consider the lamb. Would check the lamb to see, is it pure? And is it spotless? Is it 
the right offering. And then they wouldn't look at you or the clothes you're wearing, wouldn't ask you about your family history or your habits or your education, wouldn't ask you about your bank balance, wouldn't look at you at all. The priest was focused on the lamb. And when he considered the lamb and seen that the lamb was without defect, he would say, it is enough. The lamb is enough. Now, we don't have to, I don't know about you, if someone had to say to you, what do you have that would cover your sins? Or what do you have in your possession that could wipe away your sins forever? I know maybe you go looking in the understairs cupboard, scour the attic. What have I got? What do I possibly have that could take away my sins forever? Or maybe what cleaning product is under the sink that I could possibly use that would do it? Maybe there's something on Amazon. What can take away my sins? Amazon, you know. I mean, I don't have anything. I don't have anything. that I, I don't own or have in myself anything that could cover my sins or wash them away forever. God knew that, and so he gave me something that would. He gave me something that would do that job. He gave us a sufficient sacrifice that was enough. That was enough. And that sacrifice, as the book of Hebrews points out, is Jesus. Jesus. Saying, you can offer this. You can offer this. And God, on receiving of that sacrifice, would say, it is enough. It is enough. So God has been consistent throughout Scripture in his deal that he offers to humanity. Something innocent in exchange for something guilty. Something pure in exchange for something twisted. Something whole in exchange for something broken. Something spotless in exchange for something stained. Something living dies so that something dead can live. So by his blood, verse 12, he sanctifies us. By his offering, he makes us clean, acceptable, received, welcomed by God. The second part, so we've got the first part of the gospel is the cross, the offering of Jesus Christ. The second part is the empty tomb. Because Jesus is not a dead offering. God raised him from the dead, confirming not just that his sacrifice was sufficient for sins, but his victory goes over the consequences of sin, which is death. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. So how do we know that Jesus' sacrifice was enough to overcome those consequences? Because God raised him from the dead. And so Jesus identifies himself with sinful people. And to be a Christian is to recognize that first Jesus has identified himself with sinful people, and then we identify ourselves with a crucified Savior. And that's what it means. So it says to bear the abuse he endured. We go to him. We go to Jesus. And whatever comes my way, 
because I'm standing with Jesus is what comes my way. Is what comes my way. Because I would rather stand with Jesus than anywhere else. That's, that's the place where I would rather stand. As Peter said, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. So what, if people give us abuse, if people scorn us, if people look down on us, because we're standing with Jesus, so be it. If people praise us, if people accept us, if people welcome us because we're standing with Jesus, so be it. Whatever comes, because I'm standing here. Because I've identified myself with the one who identified himself with me, Jesus Christ. So that's where we start, right? That's the foundation of everything in church, the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. And so, in essence, becoming a Christian is turning to this one, turning to Jesus. And when God says, what is your offering for sin? Saying, Jesus is. What is your hope in life? Jesus is. What is your hope in death? Jesus is. Jesus is. So from our gospel foundation, we're going to move to our faith foundation. Right? So what I mean by this is what it feels like to exercise faith. In verse 14, it says, we have no lasting city. Nothing lasts. Nothing is forever. Not your job. Not your health. Not your relationships, because even if nothing else breaks them, one day death will. No government is reliable. No nation is secure. The weather constantly changes. The stock markets go up and down. Your job security can vanish. Your football team will lose. Nothing is sure and certain. Nothing lasts. We have no lasting city. Except for one thing. Verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So in an unstable uncertain world and sometimes it feels more unstable and more uncertain than others in a world where there's war in Europe war in the Middle East people worried about war in the Far East there is crime, disease all over the place you can feel and you hear about it all the time you can feel nothing is certain nothing is stable except for one thing He is the one thing that you can build your life upon. The rock that is a solid foundation beneath your feet. And because you have that one solid, sure thing, everything else becomes manageable. And that's part of what it means to have faith. In an unstable world, you cling to what is true. And sometimes that we need that emotional security. We can need that. That sense of just knowing. And this is I love this bit in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6. There's nothing more encouraging and stimulating in your prayer life or in your struggles or in the questions that you might have than to go to the Bible and look for the answer to this question. What did he say? 
What has he said? What has Jesus said? Listen to this. Verse 5. The power of his words. Because he has said, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So verse 6. So we can say with confidence, the Lord's my helper. I'll not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? What can anyone do to me? Oh, they could kill you, Phil. Yeah, but do you know what happens if that happens? I just get to go to be with Jesus. I've got heaven coming my way. So what can anyone do to me? What can anyone do to me? I won't be afraid in death or in life, through sickness or in health. What can, I, what can, I, what can happen? I won't be afraid because the Lord is my helper. And how do I know the Lord is my helper? Because he has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He has said, so we can say. We are tired and weary. He says, come to me. So we say, I found rest for my soul. We are heavy burdened. He says, come to me. And we say, he's lifted a heavy weight from me. We are full of shame. He says, your sins are forgiven. And we say, my soul rejoices in the salvation of the Lord. We might endlessly strive to work for our salvation. And he says, it is finished. So we say, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We are frightened of disease, of death, of dying. He says, I will raise them up. So we say, O death, where is your sting? We have been given good news. And this gospel is the basis for a faith and a life that makes a difference in your everyday life. Because he has said. Because he has said. So if, you, if you're wrestling with something, a really great question to ask is, what has Jesus said? And what does that mean? for me. And he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's a faith we can build ourselves on. So we've got a gospel foundation and a faith foundation. What about our life foundation? How are we supposed to live? Well, here are some things that uh, I won't spend too long on these because I think you've, you've had a whole series on them, but we'll just recap a little bit. Here are some things for, for our life foundations. Um, love one another, verse 1. Uh, show hospitality, Verse 2, care for the, the persecuted and those in prison. Verse 3, honor marriage. Verse 4, don't love money. Verse 5, and be content. Verse 5. These are really great little summary of a way a Christian should live. So question for you, how are you practicing hospitality? Who are you inviting in? that maybe I might not be able to invite you back? Have you made space for a guest to eat, sleep, get warm, find shelter? Do your non-Christian friends know what it is to enjoy the warmth of your hospitality? And it might be, hey, I don't have really a great place to invite them in. Well, find a way in the, in the pub down the road or in the cafe or the restaurant. Show people hospitality. 
We are to care for the persecuted and those in prison. In fact, it goes, it's kind of slightly more intense, is remember those who are in prison as if you yourself was in prison. Remember those who are being mistreated for their faith as if you were being mistreated for your faith. It's kind of like, imagine what if it was like if you were in your shoes. So we have to remember in our prayers the persecuted church around the world and think what it is to support them and to pray for them. We're to honor marriage. So sexual immorality, it says, don't, don't have sex before outside of marriage. And if you're married, don't have sex with someone you're not married to. Honor the marriage bed. Sexual morality. Their ethics are pretty clear throughout the New Testament. We're also to be content and generous and not in love with material possessions and money. So quick question, how would you know if that was you? How would you know? How can you do a quick diagnostic test? as to whether or not you love money. The easiest way is to try and do something quite radical with it, is to give it away. That will know, that will tell you pretty quickly whether you love it or not. If you can do it in a way that means someone else is getting what you could have spent on you, and you find that really difficult, then maybe God is saying, hmm, Something in your, there's something tugging on your heart here that I'd rather it not tug on. The surest way to keep your heart free from the love of money is to develop in your character a generous, a generous spirit. Planned, purposeful, and spontaneous. Practice ways of finding ways of being kind and generous. Pay for lunch. Buy someone a gift. Say yes to the appeal. Find ways of giving freely, joyfully, creatively. It isn't about the amount, it's about the heart. It's not about the amount. This applies to someone on low income and high income. Be generous. The amounts will differ, but the heart will be the same. Generous heart. Generous heart. So this short section finishes with a beautiful challenge. Be confident because God is with you. runs through all this list of things and then says, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. When it comes to giving stuff away, the Lord is my helper. I won't be afraid about what I don't have. The Lord's my helper. And he's pretty rich, so I'm, I'm good. We can, we can feel free and be free because he has set us free. So, what I want to spend a little bit of time on, because of what's happening today, is the next bit, verse 7, where it says, remember your leaders. Remember your leaders. So here is our leadership foundation. We've got our gospel foundation. We've got our faith foundation. We've got some insight into how we should live as Christians. What should we be looking for in leaders? Well, verse 7, they speak the word of God to you. They have a faith worth imitating. They have a way of life that's worth considering. They don't give you any strange and weird teachings. Verse 9. They strengthen your heart through grace. Verse 9. Verse 17. They keep watch over your souls. Verse 18. They act honorably with integrity 
And verse 18, they've got a clear conscience. They're trustworthy. Now, I would argue that that's a pretty good list. That's a pretty good list of criteria by which we should evaluate leadership and look for in leadership. Do they have a faith and a way of life that you would want your non-Christian friend, if they would come to faith, to copy? Or your children to copy? When you hear them pray, you think, I'd like to pray like that. I was in the prayer meeting before the service, and I encourage more of you to be there. And I can say that because I'm not here every week, but I think more of you should be there every week. Because you would hear people pray that it would be good for you to pray like. It would be good for you to pray like more, some of the people who were praying in that room this morning. They prayed in a way I thought, it's good stuff. Prayed with faith. Prayed with passion. Prayed with zeal. Prayed with the, spirit, the sense of the Spirit. They prayed for you. They prayed for this time right now. They prayed for you. That God would speak to you today. So if God is speaking to you today, excuse me, it's because someone's prayed for that to happen already. When I hear someone, a leader talk about Jesus, I think, oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, that's right, isn't it? That's good. Wow, I want to know Jesus like that. I want, I, I want what they've got. They've got a faith. They've got a faith worth imitating. When I think about the way they go about their life, when I watch them, I want to think integrity, honesty, trustworthiness. I think, oh, they're handling their business pretty well. I wish I, yeah, I've got, I've got some things to learn from this person and that person. How are they doing as a parent? Wow, they've been married 30 years and, you know, their, their wife still loves them and is not sick of the sight of them. What am I, what, you know, what have I got to learn? Well, quite a few things, maybe. The way our leaders live should make the rest of us think. Not necessarily to feel bad, not as a comparison, and certainly not to put them on a pedestal. But the, this is the chain of Scripture. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I'm trying my best to be like Jesus. So follow along. Follow along. Christ perfectly shows us what God is like. Now, our leaders imperfectly are showing us what faith in Christ is like. It's there to spur us on and encourage us, to give us something to look at and to see. Now, that's a real challenge because those in leadership probably are thinking, help. Help me right now. Because we all, they're aware of how much further they have to go. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. You want humble leaders and not ones that are overconfident in their own goodness or greatness. But this is a good, this is a good set of uh, criteria over uh, what we should be looking for in leaders. Okay, so if we've got leaders like that, what is it the rest of us should do? Well, we should follow. So this is our discipleship foundations. So the first thing we should do is we should reflect Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. We should consider, give thought, consider the outcome of their way of life. 
and we should imitate their faith. So reflect and consider. It's not just it's not a blank check here. You're not giving leaders a blank check. You're going to reflect and consider what they do and how they live and how they go about business in the church and how they talk to you and how they involve you and how they talk to people. And you're going to reflect on that. Is that good? Is that, are they talking with kindness? Are they talking with generosity? Are they after these people's best interests? Are they, are they willing to say no to someone for good reasons? Can they stand up to people sometimes when necessary? Because you need wolves. You need shepherds to protect you from wolves. So reflect, consider. And if you've reflected and considered and you see all these good things, then imitate. And the second line is obey, submit, and pray. Obey your leaders, verse 17, and submit to them. And verse 18, pray for us, pray for them. So we're to be a thoughtful, prayerful, supportive group of followers who actually, you know, follow. We follow because of the honesty, integrity, trustworthiness of the gospel they preach and the example they set. So if you see that, follow it. Don't be difficult. Don't be a founding member of the awkward committee. Don't grumble. Now obviously this is a context of things being generally good, good leaders doing their best to lead a good people forward. We know that sometimes this is not the case. In some places, and things go wrong. So that's why we reflect and consider. So none of this is about just giving bad leaders a pass on stuff. It's not about that. But you know that there are people who could find something wrong with a sunny day. It's too hot. My garden needs rain. And then it rains, and it's like all it ever does is rain around here. You know, the sort of people who could pick a fight when they're on their own in the house. It's, there's, there's, there's just grumbling and moaning. Oh, for goodness sake, don't be like that. Don't be like that. Because that leads to leaders who groan, verse 17. Don't, don't be a difficult person to lead. When, some, when a leader invites you to pray, think, yeah, all right, let's do it. When, when a leader invites to sit down and read the Bible with you, say, yeah, sounds good, let's do it. When someone wants to lead you, be easy led. Because it will be, as it will say, get to in a minute, for your good. Don't be like the Israelites who grumbled in the desert, wishing they were back in Egypt. Don't be like that. No, leaders who lift their people to see Jesus and people who lift their leaders in prayer is a beautiful combination. Their job is to lift your eyes to see Jesus. And if they're doing that, well, then you pray for them. And make make their life a little bit easier by being easily led. Which is why the writer says that this this is our motivation. This is what drives us Because it's good for me. It's good for me. This is to your advantage. Verse 17. It benefits you. It benefits you. You are allowed here scripturally to think entirely self-interestedly. You're allowed here, permission here, to think 
is this good for me? If it's not good for me, no. But if you've got these kind of leaders preaching this kind of gospel with this kind of faith, with this kind of heart for you, then it is for your good to be led by them. It will benefit you. You will grow. You will be helped. You will be strengthened. It is to your advantage. Verse 17. It will be of no advantage to you, it says. What it says is the negative. It's of no advantage to you to grumble about good leaders. Instead, let them do it with joy. Let them lead with joy. What you want is to hear, when I hear Hugh come over to Stockholm and he tells me about Redeemer, when I say, it's just beautiful what's going, what God is doing amongst the people, the way that they're responding. In fact, his conversation is seasoned with praise for you guys. Because that's, that's what it is. This partnership of leaders together seeking, and the leaders in church, not separate things, as if it's two separate things, but one thing brought together to worship Jesus. So it's to your good and theirs that they can lead you with joy because you, having considered the way that they live, think it's for my good that I follow these guys. Make sense? Great. And then, towards the end of chapter 13, tells us, reminds us what we as a church should be all about. The, the, the things, our mission foundations, four things. Kingdom, worship, witness, and service. We are to seek the city that is to come. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. We're seeking that kingdom. That's what we're about. That's what Redeemer is about. Seeking the kingdom of God to break in into Colchester in ways it hasn't broken in for who knows how many hundreds of years. They start seeing the kingdom in places it's never been seen before. In parts of the city it's not been seen before. In businesses where it's not been seen before. In schools where it's not been seen before. You start seeing signs of the kingdom. We seek the city that is to come. And then it says, verse 15, offer God a sacrifice of praise. We're about being a worshipping people because Jesus is amazing. He's really good. He's great. I love being loved by Jesus. I woke up this morning on Hugh's sofa bed and, and I was kind of, you know, like those moments where you sort of wake up and, and I was thinking, it's a sunny day, I, th- I should go for a run or I could stay here. Stay, I could stay here. I could, I could go for a ride. I could, I could stay here, just under the, blind, under the duvet. And then I just I, I felt God said, Jesus said to me, because this is, I, I enjoy running. Um, I enjoy being out in, outside and just, and I just have begun to hear Jesus say to me, I'd like to go for a run with you. And so I thought, yeah, all right, let's, I'll go for a run with you, Jesus. And I didn't have any revelation on the run, but I just was enjoying the grace of God, just gift of life. Here I am on a sunny day. I'm alive. I'm here. It's great. It's good. Thank you, Jesus. I'm with you. You love me. I'm on a run. I'm, I'm go- I, went for a run. I went for a run with Jesus. So I want to offer him a sacrifice of praise. 
what a privilege it is for us to be here this morning to, to really lift up our voices and give Jesus what he's due. Amazing. That's what we're about. Kingdom, worship, witness, acknowledge and make known the name of Jesus. That's our witness. We want to acknowledge that in our life, acknowledge to others. What helps you? Well, it's my faith in Jesus Christ that really helps me get through, the, through life. Yeah, Jesus shapes pretty much everything. So I want to acknowledge that. And that acknowledgement is not just to yourself privately in the mirror. It's so that other people would hear you acknowledge the name of Jesus. Make him known, the name of Jesus. So it's a challenge for us, but it, you can do that in all sorts of ways. You don't, you don't, have, to, you don't have to suddenly become embarrassing to acknowledge the name of Jesus. There are all sorts of ways in your life where you can testify to what he has done for you and his goodness and his grace so that others would go, you know what, that person's a Christian. That's what they are. That's a Christian over there. And then the last thing is to do good and share what we have. Verse 16, thing we're about. So we're about kingdom, we're about worship, we're about witness, we're about service. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. I often, I've started to wonder whether we actually have forgotten what it is to do good. Whether, we, whether we, we just assume that by not doing anything bad, we're doing good. And that's not quite right. Like when was the last time someone was saying, thank you for doing that, that was really kind of you. You've done me good. It's a good practice to do good, to find a way of doing something for someone else that is good. It's not complicated, but actually I wonder whether in our busy lives it's maybe not quite as happening as often as, as we would like to think. If we audited it, if we, took a, if we did a count-up, whether we'd be, oh, yeah, I'm sure... I, did we not do, can we, do you remember when that was? And you're like, yeah, but actually that was 2018. All right, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not just my age. It's actually I've just been a bit busy and preoccupied with myself that I've forgotten to do good to others. So we're looking for the kingdom of God. We're a worshipping people who make Jesus known to others, helping, we've got exactly the same strap line as you. We exist in Grace Church, to help people find and follow Jesus. It's excellent. It's excellent. But you want when people, in the cult, cult, when people in Colchester, if they hear of Redeemer, say, you know what? That lot, they do a lot of good around here. They do a lot of good. We're grateful that they're around. We're glad that Redeemer exists because they do good. They do good. And if all those things are true, your gospel foundations, your faith foundations, your life foundations, your leadership foundations, then your mission and purpose foundations, then I think God will be pleased with you. And so whatever fruit comes, whatever results come, neither here nor there, although I'm sure God will bless it because he will be pleased with you. So I'll just finish with this, which is the verse, verse 20 and 21, and I'm just going to read it. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, 
by the blood of the eternal covenant, may this God and this Jesus equip you, Redeemer, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. I pray that God would work in you all that's pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.